1: You're listening to Wednesday Wonders on the Mutual Audio Network. Be amazed. The following audio drama
2: is rated PG-13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. Welcome to Chronosphere Fiction. This is your pilot, Daniel French, bringing you a new adventure from Patricia Keeler. Put on your space gear because we're going to Mars in a story of terraforming and espionage called Colony. Hey, by the way, the Chronosphere could use a new spectral stream stabilizer. So if you can, please either go to our Patreon site or our Podbean site and contribute a little bit. Those of you that have been waiting for some rip-roaring devil tree will be happy to know from Craig Robotham. In the near future, we will be bringing you Episode 1 of The Undead Trail, which begins with Part 1 of When Death Comes Uninvited. That's right, it's the Wild West, and it's weird. But enough of that, I hear the jets firing on a shuttle, bringing us to Colony by Patricia Keeler. Here we go.
1: Fifteen-year-old Troy Robinson stared out of the porthole of the spaceship as it took off. He watched as planet Earth slowly became a beautiful blue, green, and white sphere floating in space. There was a certain amount of sadness in his heart to be leaving the world on which he was born. He was leaving so much behind. His friends, his school, his hometown, and perhaps most of all, his grandparents. However... He was excited, too, by the prospect of becoming a pioneer colonist. Troy was going to start a new life on Mars with his parents, Dexter and Dana Robinson, both astronauts with a scientific background, and his 13 year old sister, Summer. They would be part of the first wave of settlers to arrive on the planet in 2051. It had taken over 10 years to construct and prepare the biospheres in which the settlers would live, but now, they were ready and waiting for the first colonists to arrive. Four huge biospheres would provide the settlers with everything they were going to need to survive in this alien environment. The biospheres were totally self-sufficient, farming their own food and livestock. They also had their own microclimate, and the colonists were completely protected from the Martian environment outside. The colony had its own shops, hospital, and schools. Its aim was to eventually create a new Earth on Mars. The colonists had a long-term plan for Mars. For the first few hundred years, they would live in the biospheres, and in the meantime, the planet would be terraformed. This was a process which would take a long time, as it involved artificially warming up the planet to enable plants and other life forms to begin to grow. The scientists aimed to produce a greenhouse effect, which would lead to a gradual rise in temperature. Once they deemed the environment suitable, plants and vegetation would be introduced, and thus, life on Mars would be given a kickstart. It was an ambitious plan, but not an impossible one. Troy was very excited to be part of this brave new venture and could hardly wait for the three-week journey to Mars to be over. For now, though, He was stuck on the space shuttle, feeling slightly bored. The space shuttle was almost like a cruise liner. It was five times bigger than the early space shuttles of the late 20th century and rather luxurious. To begin with, the shuttle had artificial gravity. This solved a great many of space travel's earlier problems. Gravity meant that astronauts would not have to cope with muscle weakening from weeks in zero gravity. It also made certain things like eating and sleeping much easier. But gravity aside, the shuttle also provided quite well for the other needs of the space travelers. All the passengers had their own living quarters. The size of the living quarters depended on whether the passenger was alone, part of a couple, or belonged to a larger family unit. There was a cinema, a gym, even a swimming pool. A school had been set up on board to ensure that children's educational needs were not forgotten. It was a home away from home. However, to Troy, it felt like he was in limbo. No longer at home on Earth, but not yet part of his new home on Mars. As Troy was 15 and Summer was 13, both brother and sister were expected to attend school on board the shuttle.
3: Hi. I'm Troy Robinson. I'm Sky Hammond. Where are you from? You sound Australian. You're right. I am Australian. You sound English. I'm half English and half Scottish, actually. I met a girl named Sky Hammond today.
4: Hammond, you say? I think I know her father, Mark Hammond. I'll probably be working with him on the terraforming project. She's okay, I suppose. I'm glad you've made a friend. It's going to be lonely for you in summer if you don't have any friends on Mars.
1: Over the next few weeks, Troy, Sky, and Summer spent most of the time together. So that for Troy at least, the weeks went by fairly quickly and fairly enjoyably. Before he knew it, the space shuttle had arrived at its destination. They had arrived on Mars. And now, the space shuttle was descending slowly towards the landing pad. Troy stared out of the porthole. He watched as the shuttle neared the red Martian soil. The landscape was barren and stretched on endlessly as far as the eye could see. There were four enormous biospheres rising up to meet the gaze of the passengers. One housed what looked like a small-scale version of New York beneath it. Tall buildings sprung up like long, elegant fingers, almost touching the vast, transparent domed vault above them. Flying cars darted here and there. A train ran along a monorail at high speed. The main biosphere was linked to three others by a series of tunnels. One of these biospheres contained every type of plant and vegetation imaginable. Another was like a giant safari park, containing every species of animal. The final biosphere was where the power needed to sustain the other three spheres was produced. Once the shuttle landed, Troy and his family boarded a bus-like vehicle that was going to take them to their new home. The bus sped through the air. It reached one of the tunnels leading into the main biosphere. Here, it waited a moment or two as a series of airlocks were opened and closed. The bus flew through the tunnel and into the domed city. It finally stopped in a small park surrounded by tall glass buildings. A reception party was there to meet all the settlers. A smartly dressed man in a white suit stepped forward to greet the new arrivals.
4: I am Senator McFerguson, and on behalf of the government of Mars, I'm pleased to welcome you all to our brand new beautiful city of Babylon. We hope you will be very happy here. I remember Senator McFerguson from back on Earth. I seem to remember that he had a lot of enemies back there. Let's just hope he's put
1: all that political sniping behind him here on Mars. The pink Martian sky cast an orangey glow over everything, making it look like a sunset on Earth. Soon, Troy and his family were taken to their apartment in a multi-story glass building. The Dexter's apartment was high above the city, and from the tinted windows, the whole of Babylon spread out before them. The family's new home was comfortable and surprisingly homey, and was neither basic nor unattractive.
4: Here's a toast to our new home on Mars. Here's a toast to Babylon.
1: Troy looked up into the sky beyond the vaulted dome and saw the irregular shape of the Martian moon Phobos. It was smaller than Earth's moon, and Troy thought it looked a bit like a potato. His eyes continued examining the sky until he found Mars' second moon, Deimos. Deimos was so small, it actually looked like a very bright star or planet. Troy thought sadly that Phobos was not as lovely as Earth's own moon, Its odd shape would not inspire lovers to gaze up at it longingly. Then he stared at Babylon, spread out beneath them, and took in its elegant skyscrapers and Mars' dusky rose-tinted light and thought that the planet possessed its own kind of beauty. And he went to bed feeling that this really was a new chapter for him and his family. The following day, Troy and Summer set off for their first day at the new school, the Neil Armstrong High School. The building itself was a cross between modern and classical architecture. It was all glass, metal, and chrome, and yet the lines of the building followed classical Greek or Roman designs. The school managed to look ultra-modern, despite somehow resembling an ancient Greek temple. Internally, though, it looked like any other school. There were classrooms, desks, lockers, computers, and whiteboards, and it was staffed by teachers who months before had been teaching in Britain, the USA, mainland Europe, or Australia. The students too were very international, coming from a wide variety of nationalities. In many ways, despite everything, the school was not so very different from those on Earth. It even had a uniform of sorts, silvery gray jogging pants and sweatshirt, as well as a silvery-gray fleece with the school logo on it. Troy's class consisted of just ten other students, six girls and four boys. Troy was pleased to notice that Skye was in his class again. He smiled across the room to her and then looked around the rest of the class. He noticed one dark-haired boy was almost in tears. Troy, embarrassed by the show of emotion, said nothing.
0: What's wrong? My father has disappeared. I don't know if he's alive or dead. Well, don't worry. I expect he'll turn up soon. I'm Chase Priestley, by the way. I'm Troy Robertson, and this is Sky
3: Hammond.
1: Their conversation was cut short at this point by the arrival of their teacher, Mr. Lynch, a severe-looking gray-haired man in his 50s. Despite their teacher's stern appearance, his students would soon discover that he was an excellent teacher and once he warmed to the class, was not as humorless as he first appeared. When Troy returned home that day, he found himself thinking of the missing scientist and wondering what could have happened to him. However, as the days went by and Troy became more involved in school activities, these thoughts were soon dispelled. After a few weeks, it felt to Troy as if he had been with his classmates for all his life. Strong friendships were beginning to form, and he and Skye were virtually inseparable. About a month after Troy's arrival on Mars, he and a few friends agreed to spend a Saturday by the artificial lake that it was at the very edge of the biosphere. This territory was known by all as the Wild Zone and was intended to resemble a wooded lake land area. It was densely forested with a large lake at its center. Beyond this forested zone were the tunnels that led out onto the Martian surface or to the three other biospheres. The Wild Zone felt as if it was at the very edge of civilization, beyond which was the unknown alien Martian landscape. Troy was accompanied to the lake by his sister Summer, Sky, Chase, and two other classmates called Sophie and Mac. When they finally arrived at the lake, Troy took in his surroundings. The area reminded him of the Lake District back home on Earth. It was wild and majestic and did not look man-made at all. Troy felt that it could almost have been Earth, except that the sky was pinkish in hue, and this was reflected in the water of the lake, which also had a pink-orangey tint to it. A weaker sun than Troy was used to shone down upon the water and made the lake shimmer like a thousand diamonds in a rose-quartz sea. Troy was suddenly aware of feeling rather warm and sticky. He glanced at his friends and knew they felt the same.
3: I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm going for a swim. Oh, me
0: too.
1: Once Troy and Skye leapt into the lake, the others followed their example. However, after half an hour or so, only Troy, Summer, and Chase remained in the water. The other three teenagers had returned to the shores of the lake, and had disappeared into the trees.
0: I can't see Sky, Sophie, and Matt.
3: Don't worry about them. They can take care of themselves.
0: I'm getting worried. Sky, Sophie, and Max still aren't back yet. I'm sure they're all right.
1: Summer was not reassured, however, and continued to fret. The two boys were not worried, and were sure that their friends would soon reappear. Ten minutes later, Skye ran into the clearing where the others were. She'd come from the densely wooded area behind them.
0: I I saw something in the undergrowth and now Max has disappeared. Yes, I saw it too. What did you see? A small gray figure. What did this figure look like? I just told you he was small and gray. (sighs) I meant apart from being small and gray. That's just it. I couldn't make out much because he was quite well hidden by the undergrowth. I I don't even know if he was actually male. He was just a shadowy figure in the trees. All we could make out was that he was small and gray. And he took Mac. Why would he take Mac? Thank God you're safe. We thought someone had taken you or something. Where were you?
3: I was examining some fungi I saw in the woods. It's completely different to anything we get on Earth. Did you see anyone lacking in the undergrowth when you were in the woods back?
1: No, I didn't. No more was mentioned about the strange sighting for the rest of the day. And although Troy pretended to dismiss the whole incident as being rather unimportant, he secretly found that his mind kept returning to it. Later that day, when Troy finally returned home, he found that he could not stop himself from thinking about the mysterious sighting and wondering just who might be lurking in the woods, ready to pounce upon unsuspecting visitors in the wild zone. However, life in the Martian colony followed a reassuring routine, and in many ways Babylon was the safest place Troy had ever lived in, The colony was well-run and well-protected. The huge biosphere which separated the colony from the harsh Martian world beyond its confines seemed to act as a sort of security shield and made everyone in the colony feel as if they were being cocooned from the dangers without. In this sanitized city, it was hard to believe that anything out of the ordinary could happen to disrupt the inhabitants' normal day-to-day existence. And so it was that Troy and his friends soon put the incident in the Wild Zone out of their thoughts.
4: We lost another unmanned probe today.
3: What do you mean by another probe, Dad?
4: Well, losing a probe is not that unusual. In the past six months, we've sent out unmanned probes and lost three. Including this one.
3: Is it normal to lose so many probes? I mean, didn't you lose a
4: manned one, too, recently? Actually, it is normal to lose probes. The Martian surface has a lot of ravines and craters. I didn't expect us to lose the manned probe, though.
0: Did you ever find that missing American scientist, Brad Presley?
4: No, we never did.
3: I still don't understand how you can lose quite so many probes. I mean, isn't all of Mars mapped and charted?
4: It is charted and mapped, but sometimes those fierce sandstorms make visibility really poor. That's when it seems to happen, I think.
3: Don't they check the weather before sending out probes?
4: They do check weather forecasts, but sometimes those sandstorms come up out of nowhere. It's going to take thousands of years at this rate to terraform Mars.
1: Dexter Robinson sighed. His son had a point. At the speed they were going, it was going to take much longer to terraform the planet. However, there was nothing he or any of the other scientists involved in the project could do, except hope that all these holdups would be temporary.
3: Good day at school, Troy. Not bad, Mum. But guess what? All of the students in my year have been asked to do work experience. That means we have to spend four or five days getting experience in a place of work. We were asked to choose somewhere we wouldn't mind working when we left school. So Sky, Chase, and I chose the Terraforming Institute where you and Mum work.
1: <laughs> I don't know whether to be pleased or terrified. Troy laughed too. He could see that his father and mother were happy and pleased that their son would get a chance to see the work they were doing. And Troy could hardly wait for the work experience scheme to begin. It was going to be so much more interesting than sitting in school studying English and history. A date had been arranged for the commencement of the scheme, and Troy and his friends could hardly wait for it to start. In Troy's eyes, the work the Institute was doing was by far the most interesting and groundbreaking scientific project ever attempted on Mars. The Terraforming Project, or Genesis Plan, as it was being nicknamed, had the aim of turning Mars into an Earth-like planet within about a half a millennium, It was a very long-term project, and the scientists working on it at the start would be long dead by the time the Genesis plan was complete. But it was nevertheless something which Troy longed to be a part of. Now, Troy was days away from starting work experience at the Institute, and he could hardly wait. On the first day of Troy's work experience, he arrived at the Institute with his father and mother. Skye had already arrived with her father and Chase. Troy, Sky, and Chase were told that they would be helping their parents in the laboratory to begin with, and then they would help with the planting of new types of grass, lichen, fern, and moss. The plants would initially be grown in a specially designed greenhouse, then moved to the plant and vegetation biosphere, and then, eventually, they would be planted in the Martian soil. Troy found all the tasks interesting, and he particularly enjoyed the work with the plants. He found himself really looking forward to his days there and he wished that he could spend more days doing work experience. Troy spent most of the following day working with the plants. He did not mind as this was one of the things he had particularly enjoyed on his first day. On his second day, Troy was left to his own devices a lot more and was expected to show more independence and initiative. Shortly before lunch, Troy found himself alone in the greenhouse. All the scientists had gone to lunch. Troy tidied up, left the greenhouse, and made his way to the canteen. En route, he decided to go to his parents' laboratory. However, once there, he realized that his parents had gone to the canteen, too. Troy glanced around the laboratory. It was deserted. He turned to go, but a sudden noise made him turn round. Out of the corner of his eye, he thought he could just about make out a small, shadowy, gray figure darting behind a pillar.
4: This building is virtually impenetrable. You can't have seen an intruder. Eh, Why don't you go join your friends over there, Troy? Your mom and I need to get back to work.
0: How did this person look again? He was
3: small and quite slight. And although I only got a quick impression of him, he seems sort of gray-looking.
0: That's exactly what I saw that day in the Wild Zone. I think you
2: saw the same thing.
0: Who... Or what do you think this person is, Troy?
1: I have absolutely no idea. And although Troy was not particularly worried about the strange gray figure, he was beginning to question whether the colony was as safe and secure as everyone had been led to believe. Then, one day, shortly after Troy's sighting of the mysterious gray figure, there were two apparently unrelated news reports. The first report did not interest Troy in the slightest bit, but he listened nevertheless to the news announcer reporting that a whole herd of cattle had contracted a deadly bovine disease called foot and mouth disease, and that the entire herd had died. This was a blow for the colony, as it meant that until a fresh herd of cattle was sent from Earth, there would be no beef and no cow's milk. The news reporter then went on to announce the disappearance of yet another probe. This time it was a manned probe. Troy listened in shock as it was announced that Mark Hammond, Sky's father, had gone missing too. He wondered anxiously what this might mean for Sky. Dad might be dead.
0: He's the second scientist to have gone missing, and they never did find Brad Priestley either. <laughs>
3: I'm... I'm sorry, Skye. It must be awful for you.
0: I know how Chase feels now. Only it's worse for me because Chase still has his mother and older brother here on Mars. Dad is all I've got here on this planet. My mom died five years ago, and the only other family I've got is not back on Earth.
3: They'll find him soon.
0: The thing is that... Until they do, they're going to send me to live with a foster family, and that's only until they make up their mind what to do with me. I'll probably get sent back to my aunt on Earth.
1: That won't happen. Deep down inside, though, Troy was far less optimistic. It dawned on him that he might lose Skye, and the thought was almost unbearable. She was the best thing that had ever happened to him. He could not remember ever liking a girl so much. He would miss her terribly if she were to return to Earth. But thoughts of Skye's possible departure were pushed to the back of his mind when he received another piece of worrying news days later over dinner.
2: Someone has destroyed over half of the plants we were growing in the greenhouse at the Institute.
0: I thought you said the Terraforming Institute has very good security. It
2: does, but I suppose that where there's a will, there's a way.
4: It could have been an inside job, I suppose.
2: Maybe, but I found out something else today. Do you remember the herd of cattle with foot and mouth disease? Well, apparently they never did have foot and mouth. That was just a cover-up by the authorities so that people wouldn't panic. It turns out the cattle were poisoned.
1: It suddenly became very clear to Troy that the disappearing manned and unmanned probes, the strange sightings, the dead cattle, and now the destroyed plants were not accidental incidents. Someone was definitely trying to sabotage the colony. But who was it, and why? Troy did not have too long to think about the situation as the following week there was much excitement in the colony as it was the beginning of a three-day carnival to be held on Babylon. The carnival was the brainchild of Senator McFerguson and was meant to be a yearly celebration. This was the first time the carnival was taking place and Senator McFerguson was hoping to make it a truly spectacular and memorable event. The carnival was being held in the artistic quarter of the city. This was an area made up of many canals and bridges. The buildings were only a few stories high here, with architecture that was a curious mixture of modern and Venetian Gothic. The allusion to Venice was not accidental, as the area was indeed meant to resemble the great Italian city. The end result was surprisingly successful. The glass and chrome blended in well with the stone-fronted buildings and the frescoes which adorned many of them. The artistic quarter of Babylon was, of course, much smaller than Venice, and there were only a few canals. These had been constructed with a blue-tinged material that, once filled with water, gave the canals a natural blue color that compensated for the pinkish reflection from the sky. Senator McFerguson decided that the colony's Little Venice would be the perfect place to host a carnival similar to that of the city of Venice itself all of the residents of the colony would be invited to wear costumes and masks. There would be fireworks, music, and dancing. Brightly painted boats would sail up and down the canals. It was going to be something that remained in the memories of all those present, and Senator McFerguson hoped it would go on to become an annual fixture. Now that the carnival was about to start, Troy and Summer were really looking forward to it. On the first day of the festival, they made their way down to the artistic quarter of the city and took their place among the throng of people that filled the main square. They had arranged to meet Sky and Chase there, and it was only after 20 minutes of searching through the sea of people filling the square that they managed to spot them. And even then, this was because Sky was still wearing her own clothes, and Chase was one of the few people not wearing a mask. Nearly everyone present was wearing a mask, and some were even wearing costumes. Troy and Summer wore only masks and were astounded to see some people arrive dressed as animals, characters from books or films, or quite often dressed in historical costumes. Medieval ones were popular, as were Georgian and Victorian attire. Some people even dressed in 20th century costumes, although these proved to be less popular than clothes from older historical periods. Summer found the masks vaguely sinister, for the masks hid a person's identity and made it very difficult to recognize friends, acquaintances, or even foes. It was dusk now, and the sun was slowly sinking in the sky. Just as it was growing dark, a large barge sailed up the canal. The barge was festooned with flowers and banners. Standing on deck was Senator McFerguson. He was dressed in a costume that made him look rather like a 15th century prince or ruler. Troy thought that the senator's attire was rather appropriate, for he felt sure that Senator McFerguson very much liked the idea of being an all-powerful medieval ruler or some sort of feudal overlord. He was waving regally at the assembled crowd. Welcome to my carnival. Let the fireworks begin. At this, the night sky lit up with fireworks. Troy glanced round. People were dancing as street musicians played, and everyone looked mysterious and enchanting in their masks and costumes. There was an unreal and almost fairy tale quality to the moment. Troy was still observing the scene when his attention was drawn back to the barge. Troy thought he saw Senator McFerguson sway imperceptibly on his feet. He stared harder, and after a second or two more, he saw the senator's legs crumple beneath him and a growing stain of blood appeared on his chest.
2: Senator McFerguson
1: is dead. Troy turned round and saw that among the horrified and stunned throng of people, there was one man who was trying to dart through the crowd. Troy looked at the man's hands and noticed that he was carrying a gun. However, Troy was not the only person to spot the assassin.
0: After him! Allowing everyone to wear masks has provided a murderer with the perfect opportunity. I told you I found the masks a bit creepy. They provide the perfect disguise or alibi for someone to commit a crime and get away with it.
3: Well, that's what happened during the real Venetian masked carnivals of hundreds of years ago. Lots of crimes were committed during the carnival period because it was easier to get away with it. So robberies and vendettas were carried out with ease, without the usual fear of discovery and retribution. Stop talking like a bloody encyclopedia, Chase. Someone's just died. Sorry, I was just trying to lighten the mood. Look, I didn't like Senator McFerguson all that much, but I would not have wished him dead. And anyway, what scares me is that it's another thing on a long list of weird things that have been happening
0: since we got here. Maybe whoever shot the senator was also responsible for the other things too. Perhaps it was all in the plan of some insane lunatic.
3: You mean someone hated Senator McFerguson so much They did all that stuff to get back at him. It's not impossible, Troy. It's not impossible. But how would he have the means and the know-how to do some of the things he's been accused of? I mean, okay, he could have gotten to the Terraforming Institute and destroyed those plants, and he could have killed those cows. But what about the disappearing probes and scientists? Did he manage to make those probes disappear? And if he did kidnap the scientists on board, why did he do that? And what does he intend to do with them now? I mean. None of it makes sense. It makes more sense if you consider just who could be behind Senator McFerguson's murder. The man had a lot of enemies back on Earth. Our killer could be some sort of hitman sent by a big
2: organization like the Mafia.
1: I suppose so. Troy hoped that his friends were right. Only time would tell now. Certainly, if the man was captured and there were no more strange occurrences, then perhaps it would be safe to assume that the same man who shot Senator McFerguson was behind all the other incidences, too. News reports the following day were full of assassination theories. There was much speculation regarding the identity of the murderer and his motives. There were also numerous sightings, although none of them provided the police with the lead they needed in order to capture the assassin. However, after about three weeks, interest in the story began to die down. The assassin remained at large, but no further incidences of any kind were reported in the colony. Attention was now being focused on finding a replacement for Senator McFerguson, and his replacement was due to arrive shortly from Earth. For Troy, the fact that there had been no other occurrences was proof that Senator McFerguson's assassin was indeed behind some plot to undermine the colony and its government. Troy had once again begun to feel safe within the confines of the colony, and was planning yet another weekend in the wild zone. This time, He planned to go camping there with his sister, Skye, and Chase. Troy was very much looking forward to this trip, as were the others. He found that Babylon could sometimes be a rather claustrophobic city, and that he occasionally just wanted to escape to a more natural, less sanitized place. Troy knew that the Wild Zone had been artificially created, but it was the nearest thing in the colony to Mother Nature. Troy and the others arrived in the Wild Zone late Friday evening. It was still reasonably light, however, so they quickly set about putting up their tents. Troy and Chase collected some fallen tree branches, and in no time at all, they had made a blazing campfire. By the time they had completed this task, night had fallen. Troy looked up into the star-filled heavens, and for one brief moment, he forgot he was on Mars. This impression was soon dispelled when he saw the odd-shaped Martian moon Phobos. Troy took a deep breath and breathed in the cool night air. He watched as the girls heated up some baked beans. Summer handed him a paper plate, and soon Troy was hungrily tucking into his meal with his friends by the fireside. Once the teenagers had eaten, they began telling each other scary, spine-tingling stories. Summer's story was particularly spooky, and by the end of it, each and every one of them was ready to believe a ghoul or ghost was hiding behind the nearest bush.
2: Colony is written by Patricia Keeler. Your very skilled narrator is none other than Jeff Moon. Troy Robinson is played by Joe Brillon. Sky Hammond is M.A. Dorfler. Dexter Robinson, a.k.a. Troy's dad, is played by Steve Katz. Senator McFerguson is voice acted by Joe Stofko. Chase Priestley is voice acted by Scott Slagle. Summer Robinson is played by Nina Bricko. Dana Robinson, known as Troy's Mom, is played by Alana Labarine. Mac is voice acted by Frank Guglielmelli. Television newscasters and other voices are by Daniel French, Caitlin Curtis, and Spencer J. Frederick. Editing, sound design, and music are by Daniel French at Fishbonius Sound Design. Thank you again for traveling the spectral streams on Chronosphere Fiction. Until next time... Keep your cosmos clean.
4: Thank you for listening to Wednesday Wonders right here on the Mutual Audio Network. Please consider subscribing to other days of the Mutual Feeds, including... Monday Matinee for classic live and theatrical audio plays. Tuesday Terrors for horror audio drama. Thursday Thrillers for action, adventure, mystery, and crime drama. Friday Follies, our end-of-the-week comedy series. Saturday Story Circle for kids and families alike. And Sunday Showcase, bringing you the very newest in audio releases for the week from our United Artists of Audio, right here on the Mutual Audio Network.
0: The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.